All right, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 7. This is one of my favorite portions of what I believe was the greatest sermon ever given. The Sermon on the Mount, given by none other than Jesus Himself. And today we conclude this portion of our study of the Kingdom of Heaven. We conclude with the last of the four warnings that he gives us at the end of this sermon. The first of the four warnings was a thought to provoke you to consider which path you're on. The path leading to eternal life or the path leading to eternal destruction. He next then went to warn us about the influence of false prophets and the deceitful teachings and acts of them that lure people away from God. He then asks us to consider that moment that we step out of this world and into the next, the moment that we die, to consider our assurance of standing before Him in confidence in Christ and not in and of ourselves, asking us to make sure that we are truly saved. But then he concludes with the fourth warning. And the fourth warning contains within it the immediate need for one to do that which he says to do. And so we begin in verse 24 of chapter 7. Let's begin. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Ideas are contained in words. Let me say that again because that is crucial for us going forward this morning. Ideas are contained in words. It is words in which those ideas are conveyed either through verbal communication or the written word. Ideas change society. Ideas lead society. Ideas drive societies. Ideas impact societies. And as we conclude the Sermon of the Mount, we find that Jesus takes a very familiar and common idea of that time and he changes it in such a unique and dynamic way using a familiar concept to all those who were listening to him from the disciples 
to the uh, average people of Israel and also to the religious leaders. Ideas are conveyed in words. Our world seems to be going crazy, doesn't it? I have often said to Dina, and she's probably tired of hearing it by this time, I just don't understand what's going on around me. I I don't get it. I don't understand why people are doing what they're doing. I don't understand why they're making the decisions that they appear to be making. I don't understand where we're going any longer. It doesn't make sense. Until you begin to look at the philosophical ideas that are driving this country. We here in America, we are not driven by what I would call a pure stream of wisdom tradition or a pure stream of physical... uh, (laughs) I always get caught on this word. Um, I always want to say physiological. Um, Oh my goodness, I'm glad I don't speak for a living. Um, philosophical ideas, excuse me. We don't have a pure stream. For example, what I mean by pure stream, you know, the Greeks built their societies on the Greek Stoics, on the Greek philosophers. The same was true for the Roman Empire. One named Seneca, for example, who we'll talk about in just a moment, was influential and uh, crucial to the understanding of the Roman Empire and the way that they thought. But here in America, we have a very eclectic idea of philosophy. We have a little bit of everything. And we bring them together and we create what we think is independent, original thinking, when in actuality it's the farthest thing from. We have a little bit of pragmatism, believing that truth is based upon our personal experiences. We have a little bit of existentialism, which tells us that all people are created for meaning. Unfortunately, we live in a meaningless world. To understand race, we have to understand critical race theory and how it's being used in our culture today. And when you get a glimpse of these philosophies, you get a glimpse of why people are doing what they are doing. Ideas are contained in words, words are adopted by people, and the way that a person thinks is the way that they act, okay? It's just like a computer. The software drives the hardware. The ideas are the software. The hardware is our physical life. In the last 50 years or so, ever since really the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have learned so much about the ancient world and the time in which Jesus lived. A lot about their thinking. A lot about this incredible uh, convergence of ideas because the Romans in occupying Jerusalem brought with it the ideas of Rome and a lot of those ideas carried from the Greek Empire. So you go back a little further and you find that the Romans were thinking along the same lines as the Greeks. And then that converged with Judaism which was completely, radically different in so many ways. And yet, in it of it all, the ideas were formed that led the individuals to do what they do. Again, ideas conveyed through words are adopted by people, and it's those ideas that move people to do what they do. 
The saying of Jesus here might surprise you that he did not coin it. It did not originate with him. He's borrowing an idea that was already established in Greek philosophy, Roman philosophy, and Jewish wisdom tradition. And yet, he changes it so dynamically in the way he presents it that I believe that's what spurred on the conclusion of the people when it says he, they were astonished by his teaching, they were astonished by what he had said, it means amazed, overwhelmed. It means that they saw that there was an authority. And the reason for that authority is because Jesus did not just simply build upon the precedents that had already been sent by the Jewish, or set by the Jewish teachers. He had true original thinking. And yet, he... He put it within ideas that they were already familiar with to make it even more accessible to everybody who would listen. Brilliant. And why shouldn't God be brilliant? Huh? One of the conclusions that I've come to after 35 years of studying the Word of God is that He is brilliant and I am not. Fascinating. I believe that I know less today than when I did start studying the Bible 30 years ago. Because it's just so incredible. I'll never reach from a finite position an infinite God's complete understanding. And yet, He makes it accessible to me through His Word. Just, we have a wonderful God. But let me show you, if I may. Jesus taking this idea that was already familiar and it was common to them, and then I'll show you how He changed it so incredibly to... Uh, provoke the reaction that we find in verses 28 and 29. First, from the Jewish perspective, the rabbinical teaching already showed us this idea in a statement written, one in whom there are good works, who has studied much Torah, to what may he be likened? To lime poured over stones, even when any number of rains fall on it, they cannot push it out of place. One in whom there is no good works, though he study much Torah, is like lime poured over bricks. Even when a little rain falls on it, it softens immediately and washes away. Sound familiar? Going back to the influence of the Romans, the Greeks... We have this. He whose wisdom is more abundant than his works, to what is he like? To a tree whose branches are abundant, but whose roots are few. And the wind comes and uproots it and overturns it. But he whose works are more abundant than his wisdom, to what is he like? To a tree whose branches are few but whose roots are many, so that even if the winds in the world come and blow against it, it cannot be stirred from its place. These were hundreds of years before Jesus. And then the Romans, Seneca, who Seneca was a philosopher in Rome, born 4 B.C., died in 65 A.D., 
He was the consultant of the Roman Empire, emperors, excuse me. And his influence is undoubtable when you read Roman history. But Seneca said this, Imagine that two buildings have been put up, each just as high and as splendid as the other, but, in, but each with different foundations. One is given to an ideal site, and the work goes ahead without delay. But the other site of the foundation has already disappeared into the soft, wet ground. You see the influence of thinking. So Jesus takes this idea that is already familiar to the people, and he concludes his greatest sermon by putting a twist on it that is incredible, astonishing. Because now he takes this, this saying, this idea, and instead of just leaving it to fill in the blank as the Greeks did, with any type of wisdom that is offered and gained, or Seneca advising the Roman emperor in the way in which he did, or more importantly, the Jewish connection to the Torah, Jesus now says very clearly, In verse 24, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of what? Mine. Not just any old wisdom or philosophy that is out there. Not simply the foundation that the Torah laid for the Jewish people. He is now superseding both of those by saying, my words, the words in which I have just given you. This is extraordinary because those listening would have been full aware of the rabbinical teaching that the Torah is the foundation of wisdom. Now he is saying my words. And in essence, he's saying me. Very interesting study if you are interested in the philosophical uh, background of the New Testament. Look into why John, in the Gospel of John, used the word logos in John 1 to describe Jesus. It means, of course, word. But the Greek word logos was used in that culture to encapsulate the ideas of philosophy and wisdom that would carry the whole society. This is the way the Greeks used it. And John is saying to that culture that whatever wisdom that the world has, the Greeks or the Romans, Jesus Christ is superior to them all. That's what he is conveying. And then he goes on to say the reason for the superiority of what Jesus said over all the intellectual thinking of the world is the fact that he is God. That's the point that John is making. And so Jesus borrows this changes it dramatically by saying the words of mine. One who does the words of mine will be established. And when the storms of life come, they will stand because their foundation is on the rock. That's what he is saying here. It's dynamic when you think about it. And it completely explains why the crowd reacted the way they did at the end. Because now he is assuming an idea that is already prevalent in their thinking and he's saying, my words and therefore me 
superseded all. I believe this is exactly what Paul moves us to in Colossians when he says Christ must be preeminent in all things. And in Colossians 2, he warns us about the destructive philosophies of this world that have originated in satanic origins. He actually says that. You know, the basic principles and powers of this world, principalities and powers of this world, And then he goes on to say that the reason that they are so dangerous is because they undermine the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. They take away from who he truly is and says to the individual that Christ and his word are no longer independently sufficient for you. You need something of this world. You need something more than Christ has to offer. And I utterly reject that. This world has nothing to offer. And Paul made that abundantly clear. Okay, are we having fun yet? Let's go. Let's keep going. In verse 24, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that and and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. You know, it would be easy, every single day driving here to church, I pass through a very wealthy area of Barrington and Inverness. Beautiful houses, gorgeous. I mean, I I can't even fathom living in one of them. I mean, my house is probably the same size as their bathroom. But, you know, as beautiful as those houses are, the most critical aspect of their structure is the foundation, right? If the foundation is faulty, then the house is useless. It doesn't matter. And that's why, of course, we need to spend extra time when purchasing a home to make sure that the foundation is secure. Jesus is asking us to consider what is our life based upon? Because everyone's life is based upon a certain set of ideas. And he is saying that the sayings of his, because he is God, will allow you to stand when the storms of life come. Now, again, he is drawing from the Old Testament. And let me say this publicly, if I haven't already. There is a large movement amongst Christians in America that want to tell us that the Old Testament is really no longer relevant for our Christian walk today. Er, That is so wrong on so many levels. The entire New Testament is built on the foundation of the Old Testament revelation. For listen to what Solomon wrote in the Proverbs. A wise man will hear and increase in his learning. And a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. To understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. When Jesus says here, he is asking us to consider. He is asking us to learn. He is asking us to be willing to follow the instruction in which he gives us. He is asking us, in a nutshell, to remain teachable continuing to learn. Learning isn't a process that we just experience as we go through school. That's just the beginning. We learn every single day of our lives, don't we? 
And one of the worst positions a Christian can find themselves in is a position that would state that you know they believe that they've come to a place where they can't learn any more from anyone and they've heard it all, oh, I've read that book. When I hear those things, I just say, oh, you're missing out. Because the, yeah, the Bible's like an onion. Oh, okay, <laughs> there we go. Here, what? You just keep peeling back the layers, don't you? Someone said that, you know, it's like an artichoke. I've personally never eaten an artichoke before, and I've heard that you have to peel it uh, consistently to get to the heart of it before it's any good. But I don't, see, I don't agree with that. Because the Bible is good from the very beginning to the very end. So I, I like it to an onion. You just keep peeling back the onion. And then he calls the person who is willing to learn and to apply and to do, he calls that person wise. There was just an article this week that stated that America has enough information, it's time for wisdom. America has enough information, it's time for wisdom. Meaning that we apply that in which we have learned. It's time that we now exercise that knowledge in some form and in some way. There are many people who pat themselves on the back for having great potential and being very intellectual. But unless you apply that potential, unless you uh, apply that intellectuality, you are never really going to contribute to society, are you? And yes, you can pack your, uh, pat yourself on the back all you want, but unless you apply it and do something with it, it's really not worth a whole hill of beans, is it? But again, from the very beginning, God instructed His people to do what He said. In Exodus 15.26, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight, give ear to His commandments and to keep all of His statutes, I will put none of you, none of the diseases on you which I have brought upon Egypt. For I am the Lord who heals you. Again in Exodus. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words in which the Lord has said we will do. Too bad they didn't do them. He again, one right after another in Exodus. Then he took of the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. Of course, James picks this up. Excuse me, whoa, went too far. James picks this up, and he says in James 1, through 25, but he who does is be a doer of the word, excuse me, and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if everyone, uh, if everyone is only uh, a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in the mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. We must apply God's word for it to be effective in our life. 
We cannot just study it intellectually and adopt it in that manner and think that that is sufficient. We must act upon what we know to be true. That's what God considers wisdom. That's who he would classify as one who is wise. One who does what he says. Now, let me make it clear. We are saved by the grace of God. We are saved by faith and faith alone. But evidence of that true salvation is captured in the things in which we do. It is an evidence to the fact that we truly are a new creation in Christ. We're no longer acting as we had before, but we're living in a new way because truly we are a new person in Christ. But then he goes on to classify the type of sand in which, or foundation in which, they built upon. He says here that in verse 24 and 25, that the wise man who built his house on the rock, this would have been very familiar to those who were listening. Around the Sea of Galilee, the type of sand that you find there is called alluvian sand. And that sand can be very deceptive. Under the hot beating sun, it can look as if it is rock. It appears to be as hard as rock. You would think that you're standing on a rock. And the only telling or the only reveal of the fact that it is not a rock and sand is when you add water to it. And then it becomes sand once again. So it would be very easy for someone to build upon this thinking that they were building upon the rock and not discover until the storm came that they were actually building upon sand. The wise builder in that culture would have to dig down some five to possibly ten feet before truly hitting bedrock and building his house upon that. But it took work, it took effort, it took time. And many just wanted to throw up their house and start living in it not considering the foundation in which it is truly built upon. And what Jesus is saying in all of this is that the philosophies of this world, they are simpler to adopt than the words of Jesus, because the words of Jesus contradict everything that the world says. It is easier to be a dead fish floating downstream than a live one trying to swim against the current. It takes time to learn and to understand the Word of God. It takes effort in digging to that depth. But when you have, you can be certain that you are building your house upon the rock. For many in our culture, in our nation, have built on the secular philosophies that we are encumbered by, thinking that they are going to be sufficient to stand in their times of trouble, And yet, when times of trouble have come, they have revealed, those times of trouble have revealed the fact that those philosophies are faulty in nature and are incapable of allowing you to stand. The psalmist in Psalm 40, verse 2 said, He also brought me out of the horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He therefore went on in Isaiah 
where Isaiah calls Jesus himself the cornerstone. This is the beginning of the building of any building. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for the foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. And then to substantiate this, Luke actually clarifies it for his Gentile readers who wouldn't have been familiar with the Sea of Galilee. And notice what Luke adds here to support that uh, understanding of the, of the geology. He says very clearly in verse 48, he is like a man who builds a, a house who dug deep. Interesting. And laid the foundation on the rock. And when the floods arose and the streams beat uh, vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. Very, very interesting. Unfortunately, there's a second individual found in our text, and that is the foolish person. Verse 26. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rains descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. The idea of foolishness, when Jesus calls them a fool or a foolish man, What is he exactly saying? In the Jewish culture, Psalm 14.1 tells us that a fool says in their heart that there is no God. That is the verse that they have used, Jewish people have used, to define the word fool. It is a person who knows what is right and does not do it. Let me say it again. A person who knows what is right and does not do it. Paul made it abundantly clear that God has given us enough evidence in his created world to show our conscience that he exists, right? So to resist that, you'd be foolish because you see the evidence of it and yet you deny it. Knowing what is right and not doing it. The eternal teenage position. But, Job wrote to us and listen to what he says in job 4 19 through 21 how much more those who dwell in houses of clay whose foundation is in the dust who are crushed before a moth they are broken in pieces from morning till evening they perish forever with no one regarding does not their own Excellence then go away. They die without wisdom. It's already being alluded to that there's a false foundation that one can build their life upon. And what reveals that reality are the storms of life. Jesus told us that even as Christians, we can expect to go through times of trials, troubles, and tribulations. And this parable shows and demonstrates that both those who are wise and those who are foolish all experience the same storms, don't they? And the way that those storms are articulated, they are articulated and written in a certain way, meaning that there are problems coming from every direction. 
Notice how it is worded here. And the rains descended, coming down. The flood coming up. And the winds that blew across. It's coming from every single direction. How many times have you been in situations like that? You're cruising along, everything is good, and then it's coming from every direction. You just, seem to can't, you just can't seem to escape it. It's at those moments that you will see that in Christ your foundation is strong. That you have built upon the rock. Both are promised the same experience. One will stand in the confidence and the assurity that Christ brings. He brings security in an insecure world. He brings peace in a world that cannot find peace at all. We are all destined for trial, troubles, and tribulations. But in those moments, one will stand and the other will fall and great will be that fall. Notice what the Proverbs say. When the whirlwind passes by, the wicked is no more, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation. That fall is great, Jesus said. And Job echoes that. Who was cut down before their time, whose foundations were swept away by a flood. They said to God, depart from us. We can, what can the Almighty do for them? A society that throws God to the side is a society that is building their house upon the sand. Solomon once again echoed in the Proverbs written to his children, The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. And in Proverbs 14.11, The house of the wicked will be overthrown, but the tent of the upright will flourish. And when the people heard these words, they were astonished. They were amazed. Because unlike the religious leaders who taught from precedents laid previously, Jesus Christ now took ownership. The wise man is one who acts upon the words in which I have spoken. Matthew 5-7. through 7. They were overwhelmed. They were astonished. They were amazed. And this concluded the statement that Jesus made. That unless, he says, for I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the righteousness of the scribes and of the Pharisees, you will by no means enter in to the kingdom of heaven. We as believers are meant to act upon what we learn as Christians. It's not enough just to know it. But if it's going to have its perfect uh, resolve within our life, its perfect result, we then must act upon it. And I want to say to you this morning, and maybe I don't say this enough, I believe that Jesus Christ is sufficient for all things. I believe that He's sufficient for all things. And yet more and more Christians in this particular moment in time as they have been challenged by this last year that we have gone through together, they have turned to the world to look for answers, to look for peace, to look for their anxiety to be suppressed. They've turned away from spending time with God each and every day, reading His Word, spending time in prayer, fasting and gathering with the saints in fellowship. And they're discouraged. 
And they're torn now because they believe in their hearts that maybe Jesus isn't sufficient. He is sufficient. He's all sufficient. I have very simple faith when it comes to this. I really do. Because I've seen in my own life that Jesus Christ took a wandering 16-year-old, brushed him off, fixed him up, and allowed me to serve him in this incredible position. As one introduced me at a conference one time, they introduced me as the epitome of the grace of God. I thought that was a compliment until I looked up the word epitome. You know. Jesus Christ is sufficient. May I ask you to turn one more place in your Bible in closing? I'd like you to turn to Colossians chapter 2, if you will. And I would like you to maybe consider, if you will, studying the book of Colossians, understanding what Paul means by preeminence, but also understand the warning in which he gives us here in chapter 2. And really, the context is found in verses 1 through 10. We don't have time to dive into it this morning, but I'd like to read it to you in conjunction with what we had just learned. Again, I believe that the epistles are simply explaining the things that Jesus taught, expounding upon them through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Notice what Paul says. He goes, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches and the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then he warns us. Now I say this, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the Spirit, Rejoicing to see you, to see your good order, excuse me, and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and have established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. But beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete. What's that word? Complete in Him who have the head, who is the head, excuse me, of all principalities and power. Paul was concerned that these new founded Christians in these Gentile regions would turn from the sufficiency of Christ to the philosophies that they were surrounded by in the Roman Empire. And he says these philosophies undermine that sufficiency. Now the world will call us foolish because we don't do what they believe we should do. We know that we should, they believe, and yet we do not do it, so they call us foolish. 
because we simply believe in Jesus. Well, if that's the case, let them call me foolish. Because if they say there is no God, God has already called them foolish, and I think he's right. In closing, I'd like to introduce a book to you. Again, you might want to get it on you know, Audible. I believe it is there. It's called Seven Men Who Ruled the World from the Grave by David Breeze. This book is phenomenal. It shows you how individuals had authored philosophical ideas that after they died, they had shaped the world. People such as Sigmund Freud, Soren Kierkegaard, the author of Existentialism, you know, uh, Charles Darwin, and others. This book is wonderful. I would encourage all Christians to read it, to understand how important an idea is, that idea conveyed in words and adopted by a culture to form and to shape that culture. But you and I were given a superior idea, idea, excuse me, written in the Word to form us into the image of Jesus Christ.